Well, morning, everyone. Uh, we're carrying on with our series uh, through the book Gentle and Lowly, which I would encourage you, if you haven't got the book, to get hold of that and maybe read through the chapters as we go. And uh, also in community groups, I think there's questions and things just to follow up and think about some of what we're looking at. So um, this week we're up to the verses in Hebrews 7, uh, verses 22 to 25, and uh, looking particularly at verse 25, but just to, to put it in context. Let me just read that to us. And uh, the verses before have been sort of talking about, in the Old Testament, the, the priests um, could perform um, service in the in the temple or the tabernacle or whatever, um, in in the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was, they could come in. They were the only ones allowed in every now and again uh, to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. But the argument was going there, well, even they died, and they weren't able to um, save themselves. They needed a sacrifice. And then the uh, this um, it, it picks it up, saying that Jesus has replaced all that system because he himself has now become our high priest. He's now the one who's entered into God's presence through his own shed blood, not the blood of of animals sacrificed, but his own blood. He's now poured, as it were, on the altar before the Father for the sins of the world, for our sins. And it says uh, then in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Father, I pray you'd just help us as we look through these verses, and I pray you'd help me to um, pause at things that are going to be helpful uh, to... Um, leave things I've put down that are not what you want to say. So just I pray you'd you'd um, speak to us, Holy Spirit. We really do need you to be the one who um, brings life uh, as we look at the scriptures together. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so there's there's two remarkable works of Jesus being referred to in these verses. Two things that Jesus has done as our saviour on our behalf. And we're, we're more used to hearing about one than we are about the other, but both of them are necessary. And um, the first is the justification uh, that we have um, before God because of Christ giving his life for us. And we're used to hearing uh, more about that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we'll do a little bit of reminders to what that means in a minute. But the second thing this verse reminds us of is that Jesus hasn't done just a great work of justification for us, but he is doing now for us a great work of intercession in praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. That's, I suppose, his other high priestly activity. And we're not so much used to hearing about that, but that's what I want to principally look at this morning. And it's important we look at that because we might conclude that Jesus, the main part of Jesus' work for us was done historically. We might think, well, Jesus died on the cross at a moment in history, 
you know, 2,000 or so years ago. It was costly work. It was hard work. We look back to what he did. We sing songs celebrating what he did. And yes, the power and the effectiveness of what he did then is still being effect, still, still in effect now. So every time anyone turns to the Lord, <clears throat> maybe someone might, may do today, any time anyone receives Christ as their Savior, the work that Jesus did on the cross all those years ago still has the same power as the very next day or the day in which he did it. That power uh, to save hasn't been uh, uh, diminished. Uh, but we can think, well, most of the hard work was done then. And even we read verses in the Bible talking about Jesus now seated at the right hand of God. He's, it's a finished work. He's won the victory. And it can sound as if, well, he's just looking now at the outworking of the work he's done. Um, but the reality is we don't yet see... All the things that Jesus um, has won the victory for on the cross, we don't see them all yet under his feet. So sin is still present. Death is still something we all encounter, whether we're Christians or not. The fallenness in the world, the brokenness in the world, all the, the, the turbulence that we see around us in the world, all of those things are still the works of the evil one which Jesus came to destroy. So we live in this now and this not yet. The now is of what Jesus has accomplished, the not yet being it will not be fully yet seen on earth until Jesus returns and he, and he brings in the fullness of his kingdom. It, it's work in progress. And so justification really uh, is tied to what Jesus did in the past on the cross in a moment of history. And we appeal to something Christ did on the cross for each of us. And it says there, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Right, so he, he, can, he can forgive us completely. He can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Intercession is what Christ is doing now and in the present. And also then in that verse it says, um, he always lives to make intercession for them. And we find that also being referred to in Romans uh, chapter th- uh, chapter 8, verse 33. If I just read that, where it says, um, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's a present ongoing thing that Jesus is doing. So let's just have a quick look then at justification, just to understand exactly what we mean by that. Justification means this, to be just, to be justified in the sight of God is to be declared completely 100% righteous before God with no guilt, no shame, nothing to pay for, nothing that you've done wrong, uh, counted to your, uh, to your life anymore. You've been uh, completely cleansed just as if you had never sinned. It's uh, to be fully legally exonerated, righteous in the sight of God. It's in the divine courtroom you've been set free from all guilt, unrighteousness and shame, based entirely on what someone else, Jesus, has done on your behalf in shedding his blood instead of you having to pay the price of sin and death. He paid it for you. And he has um, then transferred his righteousness onto you. So you can now stand before God knowing you are justified by the blood of Christ. 
And that justification uh, declares us free in God's courtroom. The adoption that comes with it actually invites us into God's living room. So we get, we get more than just being justified. We get adopted to be his sons and his daughters. And we, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is justification. Coming to Christ, receiving Christ as your savior, knowing that apart from him you would have no hope of ever being forgiven for the sins and the things that separate you from God, the things that every human being on planet Earth has ever uh, has, uh, has been uh, trapped by ever since in, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. Humanity's been broken. The world has been broken. That's why we see all that we see around us now. It's not God's doing. It's our doing. We have set something in place, and evil is now rampant in the world. Sin is now rampant in the world. And Christ came to destroy the works of the evil one and to make it possible for us to be restored back in our relationship with the Father, knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. That's what justification is. So the question is, <clears throat> for any of you here this morning, have you, have you felt your need of a Savior yet? What have you done with that? What have you done with what the Bible says is true? You need a saviour. We all need a saviour. We cannot find our way to God without a saviour. I was talking to someone recently who'd had an unexpected uh, heart attack and came very close to, to, well, to their life prematurely ending. Uh, they're not a believer, and they, they said to me, it suddenly made me realise the frailty of life, the, 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 the finite nature of just, I could, have, I could have just been gone. Listen, all of us one day are going to die, and we're going to stand before God. Have you realised your need of a saviour? You need a saviour. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come for a holiday. He came on a rescue mission, because you need a saviour. I need a saviour. If Christ had not saved me, I would not be saved. I cannot save myself. I need him. I need a saviour. That's the reality of our situation. We can't save ourselves. We can't shepherd ourselves. We can't undo the wrongs we've done. We can't undo the wrongs we've done to ourselves, to others, or to God. And that sometimes in our lives we feel desperately guilty. And, you know, the reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty. That's why we feel it. Jesus died so that all our wrongdoing, all our wrongdoing could be placed on him to the uttermost. To the uttermost means this. Even believers, which most of us are here this morning, even those who are following followers of Christ. When you sometimes when you and I hear songs about justification and hear hear the thing about us being right with God, even believers, I would say most believers have something in their mind that they think, well, I can believe I'm forgiven for everything else, but this one thing is the thing that plagues me all my life. And I think, I don't know if I would even forgive me for that. And yet, can Jesus really have cleansed me for that? Can he really have made that uh, now as if it never happened? It's difficult for us to accept that he's forgiven even our very worst things that we don't even like to remember or think about. Well, when it says he saved us to the uttermost, it means it's included all of that. All of the things that you think, well, I don't, I don't know, I just don't know. I've all got this nagging day. Am I really cleansed from that? To the uttermost. To the uttermost. You can't out-sin God. You can't do something that Jesus died on the cross and think, oh, yeah, no, I'm not touching that one. That's far too bad. It's just not possible. 
It is a complete, comprehensive, exhaustive, whole experience. And the only time that the word uttermost occurs in the scripture, apart from in these contexts, is like when um, Jesus healed the disabled woman for, of 18 years. And he was, she, she was saved. She was healed to the uttermost. Everything that was dysfunctional about her, to the uttermost. She had a complete healing. And that is the same for us. Do you know Jesus is willingly and most naturally drawn to the places we find most difficult and most unforgivable in our own lives. He does the uttermost on us. We cannot sin our way out of his reach or out of his tender care. So that's what it means to be justified. And it leads us on then to realize that his intercession means that he constantly hits refresh on that work in our lives. He's constantly praying for us and and, and uh, pleading before the Father, not... Not because the Father's unwilling, but he's reminding the Father there's this thing going on in heaven with the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Father, celebrating, depending on, declaring, um, yearning for the work of Christ finished on the cross to have its full reach, to have its full implementation. Jesus prays that his own kingdom would come because he knows that that's necessary for the victory he's won to be established. That's why prayer meetings are very important. That's why it's important we pray personally. We're not praying for wishful thinking. We're agreeing with Jesus that the things he wants to do, which, which he's won, are going to take place, are going to, are going to be seen. So that, that intercession I just now want to turn to and just give a few thoughts. Um, I think when we think about Jesus praying, interceding, it's about imagining and understanding that the same passion he had before the cross and on the cross in securing our salvation, he now has, after the cross, undiluted and as much passion in the present as he had in the past. He's as passionate about you and me and seeing his salvation fully worked in our lives now as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was really wrestling uh, through with, with what he knew he had to do. He's just as passionate about you and me. He's just as, uh, his, his prayers are just as strong for you and me now. Uh, in the Gentle and Lowly book, it kind of gives the uh, example of like a, an elder brother cheering on his younger brother in a race when he sees him coming to the finish line, knows that he's going to get through, he's going to win, but he just can't help cheering because you want to see him get there. And Jesus is a bit like our elder brother, and he's seeing us in this race that, we, that is the Christian life. And he knows we're going to get there. He knows we're going to get through the finish line. But he's cheering us on. His prayers are like his cheering us on. His prayers are effective. They motivate us. They help us. They, they stimulate us. They do something to us. Something happens in us when Jesus is praying for us. Now, what is intercession? Well, it's a, certain type, it's a certain type of prayer, and it usually means a third party coming between two other parties and making a case <clears throat> to one on behalf of the other. That's what it usually means, to intercede between two people. So Jesus is like appealing to the Father concerning us. It's that kind of a, he's, he's leaning into what he has done on the cross as as the reason and the right that he can then pray for us for God's kingdom to fully be manifest in us. He's, it's like he's, he's reminding the Father of what he's done for us so that, so that we receive all that he intended. 
He's proclaiming, he's declaring over us what he has done before the Father, what he's accomplished for us by himself. His intercession, as it were, turns the Father's gaze toward Christ's work for us, not towards our sin. The Father doesn't look at our sin. The Father looks at what Jesus did on our behalf because Jesus intercedes for us. It's like he's saying to the Father, look what I've done, look what I've done, what you sent me to do, I've done what you sent me to do, I've done what you sent me to do, save them, Father, save them, because of what I've done. I've laid down my life for them. His prayers remind and forcibly apply all of heaven's power, that, uh, and, and heaven's power is then released against any accusations against us that the devil or, or his demons may make. But it's also important to say that Jesus' intercession for us is not only focused on the forgiveness of our sin. It's also focused that our faith won't fail. Uh, You may remember there's the the account where Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, uh, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, there's a kind of a sober reality to the spiritual warfare that goes on. You know, Satan desires to sift us like wheat. It's not very good news, is it? But he does. He's got his eye on you. He's got his eye on me. He's got his eye on this church. He would love to sift us like wheat. He would like to ruin the church. He'd like to ruin you. He'd like to sift you like wheat. That's what he's, that's what he's desired it. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. What's the antidote to that? What's the thing that could give Peter courage knowing that truth? Simply the fact that Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Now, as I, as I kind of look out at how things are at the moment, um, we're in this kind of, well, we can't call it post-COVID. We're in another different season of the COVID thing. Um, and I think the threat to believers, I think COVID is not the greatest threat to believers. The greatest threat to believers is that Satan would sift us like wheat. And that we give up that the church gives up. This church gives up. As I talk to people around the country, I find many churches really, really struggling. Many leaders really, really struggling. Maybe churches, perhaps a third of the people gathering back. Many not coming for legitimate reasons, you know, ill health or concerns or, you know, vulnerabilities that... uh, Know, genuine pastoral reasons. But for many, it's the effects of being isolated for 18 months without fellowship, full of fear, not knowing what's going on in the world, the mental pressure, the emotional pressure, the feeling of being put in a spin dryer and set up very fast for a long period of time. It's like Satan's trying to sift us like wheat. And if you can come out of that standing, doing well, well, I applaud you, but I don't believe you. 
Satan's desire to sift us like wheat. It's not stupid. He'll use this. He'll use this. The greatest, if you said to any believer, tell you what, for 18 months, don't go to church. Don't really fellowship with anyone. Don't really um, give much attention to your spiritual life collectively. Um, I'll come back and see you in 18 months, see how you're getting on. I would guarantee there is not one person who would have thrived as a believer in that period. Why? Because we're not meant to do the Christian life alone. Now, we're saved in an individual relationship. We're not saved by coming to church. But our salvation is outworked in, in the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We're not a collection of limbs. We're a body. The body works together. Otherwise, it isn't a body. If you saw a hand going along the pavement like that when you went to down the high street, you wouldn't go, oh, look at that amazing hand. You'd go, ugh. If you see a Christian doing life on their own without other Christians, you don't go, oh, look at that godly believer. You go, ugh. Because it's not what hands are supposed to do. They're supposed to go on arms, which are then go to shoulders. And there's a song about that. <laughs> not going to sing it. We don't do well on our own. Satan has desired to sift us like wheat. That's what he's doing. And you think, oh, gosh. What are we going to do? Nothing. It's not what we're going to do. We can't do anything. You're being sifted. Well, yeah, but how do I help? How do I get out of this? How do I help myself? How do I? How do I get myself? I thought Tim was so brave, saying what he said, feeling a bit dry. You might think, "All oh, right, try harder, try harder." Two weeks later, still dry. How are we going to get out of this? We're not. Shall I tell you how we get out of this? Jesus is praying for you. That is the thing that makes me think oh, I can relax, not relax and do nothing. But relax and think, do you know what? He's carrying the heavy end of this. I, 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 don't, I don't have to fix myself. Wouldn't it be amazing if you went home today and you went into your lounge and whatever, there's a room, whatever room you've got next to you, so you heard a voice in that next room. And then you thought, someone in that room. And you didn't listen. Who's in there? And you listened. And then you, you heard Jesus praying for you. Wouldn't that be amazing? You listened to him, mentioning your name. You heard his tears and loud cries for you that your faith will not fail. That you'd get, he, you, he'd get you through the line for which he paid the price. Wouldn't that be so reassuring? Wouldn't it? I don't know, imagine Jesus just, you could hear him praying for you. Because it says when Jesus was on earth, he prayed with loud cries and tears. He was very emotional when he prayed. Imagine you heard that emotion and your name was actually the focus of his prayer. You don't have to imagine that. Because it's true. It's just not in your next door room. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, making mention of you and me and us. In his prayers. That's the thing that gives me confidence about the future. Now, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. Because my, my, my study of scripture, I'm convinced 
from the scriptures, we can't lose our salvation. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But the thing that makes me think I'm not wrong is this. If Jesus prays for, if Jesus died on the cross for me, and that power is all sufficient, and if Jesus is praying for me, that my faith will not fail, how is it possible that from the day he forget, he first saved me, he will not continue to save me to the uttermost? Because his prayers are as effective as his death on the cross. And my last breath here, he will stop praying for me and will say, welcome, I've been praying for you. It's good to see you. So what he began, he will finish. Now that doesn't actually make me feel passive. That makes me feel strengthened to think it is worth me praying. It is worth me saying, Lord, I'm thirsty, I'm dry. Will you fill me? Will you help me? Will you help me navigate this? Lord, will you help us? What could happen if we're not aware of it, aware of Satan's schemes, is that what happens is we start getting used to not coming to church and then we, we might get filled with sort of fears or all sorts of things. Um, and so you start to adopt a lifestyle um, that just has less and less of God in it. And you think, well, I can just do me and God on, on my own. But what happens is you actually start to then backslide. And after a few years, you're left in a spiritual wilderness, not really being what God intended you to be. Now, I know probably none of you need to hear me say that because you're here. But the majority of the church aren't and can't be at the moment because we can only take a certain number. There's all sorts of things we're grappling with. And the reason I'm mentioning all that is to make us realise how completely impossible it is for us to sort any of this out ourselves. <laughs> what do we need? Do we need someone with a cunning plan? Do we need the elders to come up with, well, this is the vision, this is the way out, and everyone goes, yes, we knew you could pull it out of the bag. Going to disappoint you there, I'm afraid. We've got no more idea than you have. Ridiculous to think otherwise. Nobody knows what's going on. The only thing that makes me feel confident that this church has a glorious future is the fact I know Jesus is praying for us right now. I don't need to worry about anything else. He'll show us. He'll lead us. He isn't going to stop praying till the work's done. He's not going to stop praying till, he, till we get a welcome home. He's not going to stop praying for you or friends or family around you who you're worried about, concerned about. You think, oh, Lord, don't let our faith fail. Don't let our faith fail. He's not going to stop praying for you. He's not going to stop praying for you. And that gives me such a wonderful sense of peace that I have to remind myself, this is where the spiritual warfare comes, that when you see the storms of life going on all around you, as perhaps many of us do, well, we all do, there's lots of storms and ups and downs, rather than looking at the storm, We've got to, got to constantly train ourselves to know that Jesus is praying for us. And he can save to the uttermost. Whatever situation you're thinking, well, how on earth God's going to, God going to sort this one out? He can do it to the uttermost. And he's committed to it. He's committed to us. So the question, I suppose, this morning is... Uh, 
How does that make you feel, that Jesus is praying for you? I'm, I'm just very, very happy about that. Hands up if you're happy about the fact Jesus is praying for you. I can't see your faces behind your mask, so you just have a signal to me. It's good news, isn't it? If his work on the cross was sufficient to save you, his work in the intercessory room is also just as effective. It's as effective as his dying on the cross. Do you believe Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse you from all your sins? Well, then we believe Jesus' prayers are sufficient to bring you through, to bring me through, to bring the church through into all that Jesus purposed. He didn't. This COVID has not taken Jesus out by surprise. And he think, now what am I going to do? I was, wasn't doing too badly for 2,000 years. Now COVID's messed up the entire plan I had for my church. What am I going to do? He's not in the slightest bit perturbed about COVID. What has been will be again. There's nothing new under the sun. There's been plagues, pestilence, wars, earthquakes. There's been stuff like this going on all through history. Ecclesiastes says what has been will be again. We're just living in it in our generation. It's If you ask someone in you know, 1918 when the Spanish flu hit or where the bubonic plague hit years before, the Black Death, these things are not new. They're just new for us. And the church has always survived and thrived, and it will always survive and thrive because Jesus will have people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And there will be a crowd in heaven beyond anyone can count because Jesus will not be hindered by anything or anyone. And all Satan's plans to sift us like wheat will come to nothing. They will come to nothing because Jesus has done the most powerful thing in history by dying on the cross. And in that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. Now, we will go through times of feeling dry and bewildered. And, you know, if I'm honest, I've been, I've been quite depressed at times through this last 18 months, as perhaps many people have. That's just naturally part of being a human being. When you're faced with something you can't control and you don't want, you want to run away from and you can't. You can't fix things and stuff happens that's painful and sad and, and you, can't, you can't make it better. You can't make it go away. That's just our mental health. But underneath all of that, it's just reminded me I am not sufficient for myself and I don't need to be. You're not sufficient for yourself, and you don't need to be. Why? Because Jesus was sufficient on the cross to forgive all your sin when you couldn't make yourself righteous, and he's sufficient now to pray for you when you don't even know how to pray for yourself. He's sufficient to the uttermost. He can save to the uttermost. The darkest sin, the greatest need for prayer, he can deal with it. Because he's the saviour and he's the Lord over all things. So let's, I'd like us just to pray uh, together and we'll, we'll, we'll break bread and, and, and just sing a song and reflect on these things. I trust that some of that will have, I don't know, strengthened you. I would say encourage you, but that's not the right word. I think if there's anything we need now, it's to be strengthened. That's the word. I, I feel comfortable with that word. We need to be strengthened. And the thing that strengthens us is not, is not, doesn't come from within. I can't be strengthened by what comes from within, neither can you. 
I can be strengthened by what comes from Jesus. And I, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us from these truths, Lord. You'd strengthen us that we are being prayed for, our loved ones, perhaps those who are spiritually a bit vulnerable or wandering a bit at the moment or completely don't know which way up is people who are angry, sad, lonely, concerned, worried, troubled, depressed, in pain, in mental health challenges. Lord, so much, so much, Lord, so much devastation. Lord, people, all of us who haven't got it within ourselves, thank you, Lord, that you are praying for us. And you're saying, like you said to Simon Peter, Satan's desire to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Thank you that you say the same thing to each one of us. Thank you that you say the same thing over this church. And the best is yet to be. The best really is yet to be. So we pray, strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen everyone who listens to this message. In Jesus' name, amen.